0: A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Uh, in both episodes, we released two episodes, three episodes, where I talked about what we were going to be reading for this week, and I messed it up every single time. We are reading through <laughs> chapter six today, not <laughs> chapter seven or until chapter eight. I messed it up three times uh so if you read the extra chapter i'm sorry we're gonna talk about it next week but yeah that's that's it i just wanted to apologize on the front side but we're gonna be talking through chapter six today so cool Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your drunken weekly book club.
1: And that is exactly why you should uh, forgive Crossland for (laughs) not only fucking up the, uh, the chapter number every single day or every single episode that we've released in the past week or two, but also doubling down on it saying all right we're reading up until chapter eight through chapter seven got that through seven until eight however you think about it i'm pretty sure you said that a few times i fucking did i know <laughs> i did
0: i know i did inside of the the Howlerpot episode and what's really funny is that i know that, that i did all the editing for those episodes and so i had to listen to myself so many times i considered doubling dubbing over it I've never had to do that for the podcast, but I considered dubbing that out and dubbing over it.
1: Uh Crossland called me to like tell me that he that he screwed up this week while we were reading and I was like two pages away from beginning chapter 7. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think I told you I was that close, but I was I was like just about done with oh, man. chapter 6. So.
0: Oh man, that would have been An entire well, it wouldn't have been that bad. I've we've done this plenty of other times where we've made mistakes in which chapter. It just it hasn't happened since the original Red Rising book. And you know what? That's a great callback because this is basically the start of a new series, right? Like this, we are we are truly kicking off the first episode covering actual Iron Gold today by Pierce Brown. I
1: I will say I think it'd be a mistake to try to start this like start this book without having read the first 3. It just it makes it strange to call it a separate trilogy in my head. I don't know. That that's where I'm coming from with it. Like it, it's so dependent on the story from the first trilogy that it doesn't feel like it's a quote unquote new trilogy or That's new, fair. New series.
0: So so here's a question to parse that though. Um is the Star Wars sequel trilogy like you kind of need the original trilogy to make perfect sense of everything that's going on in the sequel trilogy.
1: Uh, well, I mean that gets kind of muddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it. I think it made sense right away because it was. It went four, five, six, one, two, three. Like it, it was a prequel trilogy. Now with the with the sequel trilogy, it's I. I'm going to stick with Muddy (laughs) as the descriptor.
0: (laughs) I was waiting for you to try to figure out what you were going to say about it. But no, I I agree with you, I think, is the point here. I think that you would be doing a disservice to yourself to start in either sequel trilogy. So for whatever reason, you haven't read the first couple of Red Rising books. I would recommend you stop here. You go back and read those and then jump in because there are obviously heavy spoilers for the original trilogy. But I Mm -hmm. guess I could see where someone could start here. I just, you know, you'd want to go back. You'd read some of these things and be like, well, what the fuck? Why are they talking about like this friendship that they had? What do you mean Darrow sold out all the all the reds
1: there? There's a there's a lot of like just interesting feelings when you come across some characters too that you you would not have having Mm -hmm. not experienced all of them. So,
0: yeah, you might not even recognize a character right away.
1: Yeah, maybe not. Right.
0: Um, (laughs) we'll, We'll get into that. I'm sure so before we do that we should talk about what we're drinking just to clarify though we are only talking about through chapter six
1: through chapter six neat what are you (laughs) Blame (laughs) crossland i've got a gin and tonic just a straight up like couple ounces of gin what is it seven ounce bottle of tonic water a big old splash of lime juice and an ice cube classic like just a simple I, i was running late i had a bunch of assignments do like right when we started recording so i was late because of that so i just threw together the fastest cocktail i could think of doesn't involve shaking doesn't involve really measuring at all i didn't measure the gin so i don't know (laughs) we we got we got to chatting like we do during the uh pre-show so i finished that and now i have a a small glass of scotch in front of me instead. And yep. then following that up, I've got what I think is my first like ultra-local beer that I'm having on the show. Ultra-local nice. as in like, from the city, or rather the surrounding city, from where I live, as opposed to just from the state. So I've got the Irish Red from Bad Habit Brewing Company out of St. Joseph, Minnesota. They, they've they mm-hmm. made waves within the brewing industry, especially within Minnesota, for the last several years. Awesome dudes, great brewery, and uh, great Great art. It's all the same artist. He works there. Mo is his name. Um, yeah. Just solid, solid Irish red.
0: That's super cool. I can speak to the quality of Bad Habit from when I've A, been like back in Minnesota and B, when I lived there, it was just freshly opened. And they had some crazy great beers, including, you know, like the red IPA style is one of my favorites, it's underutilized mm-hmm. because it's it's just malty and delicious and does not yeah. get...
1: This is not a red does not IPA. doesn't get made enough. This is just but a red it's a, ale.
0: Irish red. Right. Yep. Irish red.
1: Right. But yes, they right. do have a... I, I think they had a red IPA at one point.
0: They definitely did. I remember them having yeah. it because I was like, this is just better Surly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is just yeah. better Furious. Exactly. Yeah. So, for sure. Good, good picks. Good picks. Yeah. I am kind of boring this week in my own way um i'm having another juan collins i had this uh, in the episode with howler pod uh but it was really good and i still had a leftover lemon and the tequila and the club soda so i just did it again and i'm not disappointed actually i skipped the simple syrup there's supposed to be a little simple syrup in this it tastes really good without the simple syrup to be honest um it doesn't need the sweet
1: good yeah i I can i can imagine that just kind of like a tequila spritzer Mm mm-hmm
0: Yeah, basically, it's got like um, it really highlights without the syrup, without the the sugar, it really highlights the tequila that you're using. So if you're using a really good tequila, that becomes, you know, the palate that you're really tasting it through. It's not just a delivery device for a lime flavored alcohol drink, for instance.
1: Yeah. Which is kind of what the other
0: one feels like. But
1: yeah, I can see that tequila has such good flavors that it can present if it's a good tequila that get completely like completely overshown by sugar so
0: right right yeah and that's also why i adore mezcal with that let's uh let's get into the chapters so the first thing i want to talk about is the prelude the prelude is fucking beautiful yeah fine whatever (laughs) prologue prelude preamble they, they can preludes, preambles and prologues can be very difficult, you know, especially when you're jumping into a new book series. They kind of set the expectations. They set the ground floor. it's the first thing that people are really reading inside of the book. And man, the beginning of Iron Gold is just incredible, incredibly well written.
1: So this this whole prelude, we, we talked about Team No Hype in the last episode and how we don't like watch trailers or anything. If they were to adapt this book into a TV show, using the prelude as just the straight up trailer for it could be really fucking cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could even use it as the intro, right? It reminds me of yeah. the Raised by Wolves intro in a way. I don't know if you've seen it or watched that yet. yet. It's very reminiscent in a lot of ways. It's got this very high sci-fi feel, this like kind of singy tone. I just imagine like a big You watch the Snyder cut, right? Nope. Did you watch the beginning of the Snyder Cut with nope. the Aquaman scene? Okay. Well, you, within that scene... I, I, I
1: learned that it was all in 4-3 ratio, and I decided oh, right. I don't want to fucking touch it.
0: Fine. Totally <laughs> cool. All, all
1: that I was trying to hearken
0: to is there's a moment there... In the movie where uh, there's a I want to say they're Norse women. I do not remember the specific region, but they're singing like a a mournful song. Right. And I imagine you would be panning over these different moments with this just like single mournful song over top of it all. And it would totally work as either the intro or the trailer. Like you said, Mm -hmm. you don't need dialogue at all. As the, the actual thing itself shows, you don't need dialogue. This is all third person. Which is fascinating.
1: That's an interesting point. I didn't even consider that.
0: Yeah. It's all third person. I think it makes sense. It, to me, I, I also get, like I said, it's it could also be the intro to that show, right? I get very heavy like Avatar when the Fire Nation attacked kind of moments where it's broken up into these four distinct segments. The Fury, mm-hmm. the City, the Bombs, the Reaper. Yeah. You know, it. It just has those kind of distinct sectional feelings that you could you could pull off. So I, what I want to do here to kind of start off the episode is just chat about each of those paragraphs a little bit. So we'll start with the first, which is the fury, which is about we'd learn her name a little bit later. But it's Atlantia, Al Grimace, the final fury of Octavia. We don't learn a lot about her, of course. Just we get this image of the families kind of behind her. What would you what would you think?
1: Well, there's the a whole, fucking eagle. yeah. Right. Uh, So (laughs) who dat? (laughs) Who dat indeed. Who dat is. That's all I took away from it. Honestly, like that's all I really focused on was who dat. Are you curious about Atlantia at all? Yeah, I am. We know we know uh, Aja was kind of the really intelligent fighter. Moira was more of the diplomat as far as we understand. So it'll be like what what is the sort of strength of Atlantia? Has that been discussed at all yet? Not at all. She was named right here. No no uh, no I know not. I know I know by name, but Oh no, yeah, her her strength has
0: also not been discussed.
1: Okay. I didn't remember if they like talked about sort of the aspects of the Furies in in a in abstract way, in probably book two. But I don't think they got that detailed about it.
0: No, yeah, they they only brought him up as they presented themselves to Darrow, which I think is a gift of the first-person perspective that uh, that we can actually now start to take into consideration now that we have multiple perspectives. We'll talk more about that later, but it is interesting. We now potentially know more than some of our characters do. Interesting. So, the Fury, anything else there?
1: Uh, No, that's what I took. The Eagle, okay. Yeah, yep, Screaming there's Eagle. A, there's, uh, I guess, what, what are the other sigils that are mentioned? Just because... There's a centaur, eagle, sphinx, and uh, the crown skull of her father's house. So so the, the second paragraph here is the
0: city, which we find out to be Tyche. The jewel of Mercury is described as a city hunched in fear between the mountains and the sun. And I think that that's so fantastic to think that a city could be hiding from the war that's coming. Hunched and,
1: like, cowering. So interesting. So visceral. Yeah, but... Also, like, it it makes it seem quaint and out of the way, probably not on a major trade path. But it's the it's the jewel of
0: Mercury. It's like it is the by all accounts, when I hear jewel, I think like the biggest or I think like Abu Dhabi and like
1: I, I can I can understand that. I took it as like has the most stunning views and is like kind of the the tourist destination.
0: Okay. Yeah, I I see that get away. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's also a bustling metropolis, right? So it's described as that, but the streets are empty. You know, under normal circumstances, it would be busy. It was so miraculous that it made Lorne cry in his youth, right? Like, yeah, that's that's a whole thing.
1: Lorne seems like the kind of guy who would cry a lot, though. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. so the the city that it learns lamenting about I think it's really interesting because the only people that remain there, this is still under the grasp of the society remnant are the are the poor, repressed colors who will be inevitable collateral damage from the bombing that is about to occur, all of the lives that are about to be lost in this attack, which is, a statement of war, a statement of conquest, but is also simultaneously going to cause a bunch of civilian casualties.
1: Yeah, but so is any sort of military strike at this scale.
0: Yeah, right, right. I just think that it's interesting that they they aren't doing the right damage. You know what I mean? Like, they're not actually killing anyone of importance. They're only going to be killing the low colors. They don't have yeah. that. But we know that from the third person perspective.
1: Yeah, but that doesn't mean that there's not a militaristic presence here. We know that the Furies here and a bunch of, like, what, peerless knights, is that what they were called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so there, there's there's something important here, militaristically.
0: Right, right. Mercury is obviously important, and the whole thing is very important. All that I mean is that, like, there's clearly, we're given the lens of this young orange as a as a point to realize what's about to happen to the low colors which are supposed to be freed.
1: The people know that it's happening as well. That's the mm-hmm. kind of fucked up thing. Yeah. Like this By isn't people, a surprise attack. You mean the, everybody. Oh yeah. yeah. They know it's coming. The father of of the little orange girl. Like knowing that there's nothing that he can do to save his family. Just just haunting. Just mm-hmm. what
0: a way to start off a book, man. You start off with the fury perspective and then you move to a a, a poor family that's about to get bombed to death. And then you shift to the bomb's perspective. Like flying down onto the city, carrying the weight of the newest empire under the sun. Like
1: fuck. If I had to choose, I'd pick that perspective to be <laughs> <laughs> the bonds versus it, the children. It seemed, it seemed the coolest. Maybe, maybe that's, the uh, the stoic old lady that's staring into the pond. But it's it's so it's so shocking
0: because I think that this intro, especially these first two or these these middle two sections here, paint kind of the 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 true brutality of war like the reality is is that they didn't choose a side the the orange family didn't choose a side they didn't have a choice in the matter and yet here they are yeah they're going
1: to die isn't that isn't that kind of the case for any single family or any single person in a war-torn country of course of course and i think
0: that's what he's hearkening to is that it's easy to miss a lot of these things, when you think about the original Red Rising trilogy, is all of the collateral damage in superhero movies, right? Like, you don't think about collateral damage. If there's one thing that I liked about Batman versus Superman, it's that you start in Ben Affleck's, Ben Affleck Batman's perspective, and you see Superman and all of the damage that him and Zod do to the city and all the people that they kill.
1: And this is that. But for the the Republic, for the society. One could also kind of argue that... Paying attention to it and and concerning yourself with it is tactically the wrong move and tactically puts you at a disadvantage in the war that you're involved in. Yes, for sure. I, you, I think it's just talking more to
0: the humanity aspect right yeah we're not in darrow's perspective darrow is doesn't think about it this way as we learn later of course when dancer brings it up to him
1: he did Um, though for the long for for a long time he was he was concerned with the well-being and safety and prosperity of the average person naturally based on his upbringing but tactically that's he could have done It's not always the best move he it's never the best move (laughs) if i'm learning anything like If you're going to win, you're going to cause collateral damage and you have to kind of build that callus and not care about it. Oh, I'm so excited for this novel. You have no idea. It's
0: so I'm, fun. Okay. I'm
1: worried I'm going to come across as a fucking psychopath.
0: Well, so so here's the reality, PJ, is that it this is the ultimate this is the quandary, right? Is the especially now that we're we're being pulled into multiple perspectives, it's what perspective is right on a conflict to some degree. What's the right lens to view war through and revolution and change and i'm so so glad we're doing of course i'm so glad this is this is really why i want to drag you through the series to get to this book
1: can i answer that (coughs) because i i think the answer is top down and abstraction and looking at the population as as a single organism not as individual parts i think that's how you get shit done and how you get things Mm. changed but Mm -hmm. being presented with more nuanced and more like well, yeah, you've got the complexity of the different, the three different chunks of
0: the society or humanity at large not agreeing with each other, right? And being separated by values.
1: No, I, it's I, I agree. Like, I I'm really excited to get into this book, but the debates of this book are so much more philosophical. I feel like I'm gonna know what side I'm on. No, every that's time. that's okay. I I I'll be interested to see. I'll be interested to see
0: because there's. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun time. But I, I think that this is just beautiful imagery Oh yeah, painting. It, it reminds me very much of the Tony Stark moment to keep going to fucking superhero movies today. In Iron Man, when he sees his own like bomb fall next to him with the name on it, with his own name on it, it gives me those same kind of feelings because we're watching kind of this bomb fly by and we see the Quicksilver logo on it and we kind of have this understanding that we have regular companies that were in charge of communications shift their business production into war because war is also profitable. And yeah, that, that drives, that drives Quicksilver at the core. So Mm-hmm. okay the final paragraph here we spent a lot of time in this prelude the reaper there's an iron rain falling with the reaper leading the charge in his red armor I, I was i was actually asked by one of our fans to read this line so this is specifically for you blood appreciate you asking i adore this line as well men call him the father liberator warlord slave king reaper but he feels a boy as he falls towards the war-torn planet his armor red his army vast and his Heart heavy oh it's that it's that good shiver you get from mm. good pierce brown writing
1: you know it's just it's so good yeah They're, these titles a lot of them make a lot of sense slave king specifically is it doesn't necessarily carry the same like positive connotation that the rest of them do i mean reaper no. technically doesn't same with warlord but <laughs> given context it makes sense whereas slave king it makes me wonder if that is a title used positively or negatively towards him? I mean, it feels pretty negative. It does
0: because he's not—he's not the king, right? Like Dancer makes a really big point of that later. You—you <laughs> you were not elected to—to uh, yeah. to like make decisions. So I, I'm it, guessing. It's interesting.
1: The people that are of the same disposition as Lyria probably call him Slave King. Okay, that's my little guess. Because I Your don't think that hypothesis. comes up again in this section, does it? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Not in this one. I could see how it could be spun positively. What would that look like? I mean, he was a slave Mm -hmm. for all of his life, and he he rose to almost unlimited power within the society. Right?
0: Yep. There is a strange kingliness about him.
1: Yeah. Whether or not he wants it, people treat him that way. So, anything else in the prelude? Oh, I mean, we didn't even mention it. The the little orange that gets blown to smithereens uh, was... (laughs) Trying little reaper scythe in the, in the fogged up mirror, fogged up window, oh, yeah, she gets uh, mm-hmm. obliterated. Which is even worse, because
0: <laughs> he <laughs> believes in the revolution. Thank you for reminding me of that moment. Christ.
1: <laughs> we don't uh, know that she dies. I'm depressed now. If, if alright, alright. This all right, first section me, is depressing. Hear me out. <laughs> if, if, uh, what's-her-face? The, uh... Lyria? Atlantia. If she survives this, which I'm thinking she probably does if she survives this maybe little orange girl does too it's a uh, she's it's in a fate. house as opposed to just by a lake it feels more protected yeah
0: i i mean maybe i guess the reality is is that we know that Atl- atlantia took atlantia took thrax's arm in battle so that has to happen between point a and b because time passes between the prelude and the maybe beginning.
1: she gave that arm to little orange girl i don't think it was a <laughs> gift. <laughs> I'm going with no, (laughs) no. All right. No. Well, in that Uh, case, let's keep going. Yeah. We're we're definitely down my ideas. All right.
0: Yeah. This, this one time, this one time. So we get into part one wind and we've talked a lot about, uh, we've, we've joked and jested a lot about intro quotes. Uh, and I do find it funny ultimately that this quote here at the beginning is a quote that is from outside the novel while all of the rest of the quotes in the series are in universe. But technically, anything that happened on Earth before the conquering is in-universe, so... That's bullshit, I don't give you shit. know it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: oh, it's so good, though. So, the the quote here is, okay. there is a Okay, poor... let, me, let me poke a hole in that theory, though. <laughs> okay. Right now, we are in this universe. Correct. Hy- hypothetically, based on your argument, we are also in their universe so in their universe we several hundred years before them have a book about them
0: (laughs) dude i can't wait until we read the dark tower (laughs) 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 can't wait to talk about multiverses in a really big way
1: (laughs) oh dude i do i do love multiverse as as you know from us reading uh blake crouch together
0: yes yeah which is the entire concept between behind the dark tower, which is why it's incredible. Anyway, yeah, okay, fine. The obviously, this book wasn't published. It's not really our earth, but we can assume up to a certain point that it was our earth. We know that the the twenty first century, fucking what was it called, the aesthetic of the twenty first century that fucking um,
1: uh, ostentationism ostentationism that's what it was that quicksilver and all the silvers kind of worship the more and more i think about it the more i think it's just like surreal memes like that's <laughs> that's ostentationism it's just surreal memes and
0: like strangely depressing works of tv show like strangely depressing forms of media that continue to evolve and adapt like craig mazin went from chernobyl which is an incredibly depressing real event to now creating the last of us series which is an incredibly depressing <laughs> zombie <laughs> post-apocalyptic thing. It's just like it,
1: it escalated. It got worse. <laughs> anyway, would you, would you so say quote here. that shit
0: escalated? I would say that PJ. I did. I do hmm. think that shit escalated.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: So there is a poor blind Samson in this land, short of his strength and bound in bonds of steel who may in some grim revel raise his hand and shake the pillars of the commonwealth. till the vast temple of our liberties a shapeless mass of wreck and rubbish lies this poem is so
1: clearly referencing what could happen to darrow oh certainly right i would like to point out to everybody listening that in our notes crossland instead of common wheel it is woman wheel which is why i stumbled over it (laughs) (laughs) just just wanted to call you out for that one yeah is it is it actually supposed to be commonweal mm-hmm. yeah cuz it's it's a poetic it's a
0: poetic form where it removed the th for wealth because it couldn't use the additional um,
1: everybody let's let's get into what crossland and i argue about all the time which is rhyming we're not talking about near rhymes. we're not talking about near rhymes <laughs> i know not, but this is crossland this is the one near that goes to bat for near rhymes all the time and i won't stand for it uh, this Any feels like poet that nerd bullshit. goes for, to bat for near <laughs> no, it's it's a form thing.
0: It is. It's totally a form thing. All right, totally a form. Thing. I believe, which means you. that it's some bullshit. I still think it's bullshit. Some some form things I think are are a little bullshit, but they do contribute to a cohesive way of enjoying a piece you know just like what are what are the really weird like seven ten seven 10 7 syllables what are, what are those called haiku's like, haiku, haiku.
1: 575 but i guess yes, there's, that's there's what your... it is
0: this is not free verse this is fitting one of those formats i couldn't tell you this which is the no well th studied.
1: no th format
0: well some poets abuse th and some like to cut it out because they didn't like the sound it made so that
1: you said it. nothing right there <laughs> You said absolutely
0: nothing right Call it taste. (laughs) Um, Shakespeare would like either emphasize or cut out depending on the character. It's not really a character trait, but it's real.
1: Anyway, talking about the quote itself, though. Uh, I would like to talk about the man whose middle name is Wadsworth, which is fucking (laughs) hilarious. Have you not heard of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? I have. Ever? Okay. Okay, uh I and just think like, his name's ridiculous, and it should be mentioned that
0: got it, got it. He was he was the first person to translate the Divine Comedy into English. Like that's his original claim to fame, and he wrote Paul Revere's Ride. Right, cool. Okay. Anyway, yeah. among many other things, but he yes, didn't Wadsworth use a is, single
1: th in the entire book, <laughs> including that his middle
0: name has a th. So like, Wadsworth oh, yeah, it's, for some reason Henry Wadsworth. That's <laughs> right. Wadsworth, Wadsworth <laughs> for some reason makes me think of a toad. I yeah, don't know why, but I it was, just makes me yeah. Think
1: of that's exactly what i was imagining <laughs> yeah
0: I'm, i just think i just think very frumpy on a on a fucking river lily just sitting a, there staring at the water waiting to
1: die lethargic f- droopy man but a frog frog man well i mean his his features kind of blend between man and frog is he man is he toad <laughs> why are we still talking about this <laughs> he has many warts
0: <laughs> he has he has many warts <laughs> mm-hmm Maybe it's because we have an intro to a book to talk about. Okay. So chapter one, Darrow, <laughs> hero of the Republic. So I find this so interesting because we start off in chapter one, we start with a very different Darrow and he, he is very weary. Like literally the first word of the entire book is weary, which kind of, well, the first word of the book outside of the prelude, right? So the first word of the actual novel and yeah, it really sets this tone for him. Shut up. <laughs> Quotes set context, not story, but yeah. So like it, it sets this up to be a very pained, pain Darrow. And we get this, we get this very different picture. what do you think of, of new 33 year old Darrow?
1: I mean, I, I felt like age has done to him what age has done to any plucky 20 something that becomes a 30 something like I don't feel disenfranchised yet. Not yet. You're not 30 yet.
0: <laughs> oh, fine.
1: All right. (laughs) No. Look at, look at Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Look at Aaron from the last episode. She was a fucking mess. Stoic and cold and (laughs) guarded. Abused by war. Obviously. No. Time has grown calluses over Darrow. And we, we had our callous discussion about Octavia, which she had, what, a couple centuries to, uh, to develop those calluses. I know, I know she wasn't that old, but she felt that old.
0: Like 50, 50 years, which is still nuts, yeah, like was, as a leader.
1: She was a leader for 50 years. And we talked about sort of the calluses that she had to build up. And it feels like Darrow in this 10 year span has built those calluses up in, in a very similar way in that he is emotionally just not as in tune with himself. He's he's not leading by emotion so much as he was in the first trilogy.
0: Yeah, he's he's coming to contend with a lot more of the, the reality of what's here right and he's starting to sort of deal with and unpack those those different components man i can't help but reference a lot of other media today for whatever reason but i can't help but think of sort of there's this like triumph around him he's coming home this victor of war he's walking in and have you played warcraft 3 with you no you your in yeah your you didn't you didn't play the campaign sadly no. i don't know why i asked i actually knew the answer to that question
1: you, you did
0: there's there's a moment where Arthas comes home after having purged the Scourge from Northrend. I say purged in quotes because the, the impression from Lordaeron is that he's won this war. He walks into the chamber and the, the turn of the moment is he's actually become corrupted and is about to become the Lich King of the Scourge, the leader. He kills his father and kills kills the council blows up lord iran we don't quite go that far with darrow here but the the sort of like weight of the clunks and everything else and the the sort of pace and timbre of his thoughts just feel very reminiscent and cold
1: i mean we're not even 10 percent into the book like it could happen
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, i just i just get similar vibes for whatever reason that's that's where my head goes it it's crazy it's it's interesting for me to say that i actually really like sequel trilogy darrow and kind of this this jaded attitude because he does feel like he's at like you said he's developed those calluses while it's been off screen for us we have an understanding of what's had to have happened to bring him here
1: and i mean we i i brought up the octavia thing because we explicitly get a quote from him saying that in in life i hated her but In death, I understand her. Mm -hmm. So there, there is there's a pretty crazy weight to even even though he's not sovereign, Mustang is so like he kind of lives vicariously through that. But even as not sovereign, he is leading a people and has has that weight on his shoulders. So those those calluses are probably probably formed in very similar ways as uh, Octavia's were,
0: no doubt. And I think that he's starting to find that he's. He maybe doesn't have the same calluses that Octavia has, but I think he's developing similar calluses to Lorne's more than anything else, especially with the way that he reminisces about family later.
1: I'd be curious to take the time to re- like re- really dig into those two characters again and see how different those calluses actually are, because I don't know if they're that different. They're just in different positions. Between Lorne and Octavia?
0: Yeah. Interesting. We'll have to finish the series and then evaluate that. But I yeah, yeah I know, we can do that.
1: Is it Howlerpod that's going through uh, character breakdowns? So both
0: so Howlerpod's already done it. They've already done character breakdowns. Each character or maybe a character pairing, which character pairing that they break down is Lauren and Octavia. They take like an hour and a half to go through two or three characters and talk through their whole arc throughout the series, hail Reaper is also doing character and moment breakdowns as they're moving through. But they're doing them kind of book by book. Okay. Uh, so I assume by the time they get to Dark Age, they will do breakdowns including those components yeah. as it stretches throughout the series.
1: It'd be interesting to to see either of those podcasts do see their see their breakdowns of Lorne and Octavia side by side and see what what they glean off of that. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you that you can't listen to those episodes. Oh, I know. I'm well aware. Okay, I'm just like I I finally had actual, tangible interaction with some of the people (laughs) People in the community. In the community now, as opposed to just you doing it. So now I feel connected. Yeah, (laughs) in a way that like I I feel like I'm able to talk about this now.
0: You are very able to talk about this with me at whatever point you want. And sometimes we do it in front of a microphone, but that's that's
1: fair. I totally understand. We always do it in front of a microphone, as whether or not we're recording
0: so we're introduced to a lot of characters here as well with familiar bra- backgrounds right we we talked about atlantia out grimace um Atlant my god i'm gonna pick a way to say this it, it's it's i think it's at atlantia is the way that it's spelled atlantia A-t-a-a. it could be atlantia <laughs> i don't i don't think so i think it's atlantia mm. at all lantia yeah it's a, it, okay it, it's, a, it's a weird one i'm not 100 on how to spell it anyway atlantia out daughter of the ash lord and the final fury we we also learned that she took a new character as well thraxa out who who's alluded to in the previous series but not strictly named her arm in combat so thraxa has a metal arm very um very cyberpunky, very good mm-hmm. and another telemonus, so why we, not carved uh that's an interesting question why not carved maybe
1: because a metal arm might be better than a carved arm i mean it should be It should be right. I would think I would think that anything bionic is better than puny mortal form, but flesh bones.
0: Yeah, I I would I would generally agree with you. I think the other part of that conversation is on the battlefield. You're not going to have it carved necessarily. You would have a metal arm perhaps ready to go,
1: Uh, you know, uh, ready to go. I don't know, man. That's a that's a fucking surgery. Well, yeah,
0: a yellow is going to have it ready to go versus like you've got a whole like rehab process with like it's not like you're going to plug and play after you get your arm chopped off. I'm not saying that you're going to have a surgery to put the metal arm on. You're going to have a little bit of rehab, but I can't imagine it's what Darrow has gone through with the carvers, right? Like yeah, the, the intensity of rehab for a metal arm is going to be lower than a a full carved arm. Because you got to like work that thing out. Otherwise, you're like a big buff, like <laughs> like the the masturbate meme, right? Where they just have giant jacked right hand, <laughs> right arms. Like it's totally I, what it is. We're uh, we're introduced to a lot of characters. Like I've said before, I really like Thraxa as a character. She's very she's a different female. She's another different female from Victra and Mustang. And yeah, ha- I have to give Pierce Brown pop props for having so many multifaceted female characters inside of the story. Uh, That all have entirely different personalities.
1: I will say she seemed to fill a similar role to Holiday in Disposition. Hmm. We haven't experienced her that much yet, but she seemed to kind of have, like, carry herself in the same sort of tough, badass kind of way.
0: Yeah, that's that's fair. I think that she is a tough badass she also comes off a lot like her mom niobe who were interested introduced to later but she feels like you understand where there's intellect inside of the uh, the telematis family man i just feel like i totally threw Cabax under the bus there but <laughs> eh, at the same time i i feel like i'm kind of correct there Cabax is very right. wise but not necessarily and, and knowledgeable, but not necessarily the most intelligent house or family. Yeah. But Niobe lends an entirely different lens, and Thraxa adds to that perspective. Mm-hmm. Daxo, of course, also being very intelligent. Uh, we're also introduced to Wolfgar, who's an Obsidian who was there in Golden Sun during the reign over Aegea. Severo was the one who gave him his razor, another moment between Obsidians and Severo. Was that um, actually documented? Wolfgar was not named, but... No, no but, I, but I Actually, that, I don't was i don't that think moment. that whole moment... I don't think that moment's documented. I think that this is an addendum. Mm. Like, we didn't see it from Darrow's perspective, I because mean, Darrow was not, leading the charge.
1: If it's not in the first trilogy, it's not canon, man. You can't go back Fuck and you. shit.
0: <laughs> it's not really retconning. <laughs> it's just describing more closely. It's
1: filling in the blanks, I know.
0: Yes. No, I, 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 get, I get what you're saying. I am though. a it,
1: first trilogy purist. <laughs> and... <laughs>
0: It's it's the only opinion you can have right now, to be
1: honest. <laughs> so, I believe that all that's happened is what has been explicitly stated on the pages of those books and the new book that we're reading. Mm, so uh, that's
0: blasphemy. Severo and Seffi, <laughs> and in the end, we see Mustang the Sovereign with a new dawn scepter with the fourteen pointed symbol of the Republic the star that we see on the edge of this book. It's great to see a lot of the familiar, familiar characters, you know, to kind of see them all come back. But the, the clumps, the clunks as he climbs, the steps have this physical weight between his like constant humming thoughts. I, and I think in particular to me, I think this first chapter of the bunch of Darrow's is the heaviest, the most immediate, a lot of the rest of it is, is still really good, still really important, but this really conveys what time has done to our main character, the weight of a year away from home, away from his family as he like clunks and he's thinking about, and he's like, he he's just weighing all of these different things, these different losses that have happened while everyone around him is cheering the victors return home for a conquering of a planet.
1: I mean, it's a little bit of a different take on a triumph, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, like, a little bit, like, maybe
0: 20% different. Like, it still feels like the old society,
1: because this doesn't feel... I meant more through through Darrow's eyes and how he's oh, perceiving yeah. it. Yeah. Like, it, it is not the pomp and circumstance that that he kind of took in the first time, which ended in... Yeah, in Golden Sun. Right. That's, that's the other thing, is going through a triumph, when last time you did this, half the people you loved got fucking murdered and you got taken and put into a box for a year
0: yeah i mean there's the assumption that this maybe happened each time a planet was conquered like when they reclaimed mars when they claimed earth um but i don't i think your point stands though is that darrow's used to coming back and being afraid of whatever the consequences are for whatever the actions he decided right and this time he he understands that he went directly against what the Senate wanted to do in relation to what had to be done for Mercury, because he made a decision that was out of line. We don't get that until later, but he's kind of also bearing his head because he knows he knows what's coming.
1: Yeah. I mean, they voted on it <laughs> and they voted against doing this.
0: Right. And Darrow is like, fuck it. <laughs> Omnisphere lupus and did it anyway.
1: I mean... That that excuse only works a couple times, right?
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Only a handful. Maybe. And it's that whole like it's that whole like king question. We'll, we'll get to it when we talk about Dancer, but it's it's definitely an interesting point. One of the things that I think has a, an interesting dichotomy of weight here in the beginning of the episode or in the beginning of the, the book here is Severo specifically makes a reference to a classic Roman phrase, which is, Remember, you are but mortal. In ancient Rome, the slave who held the laurel crown to be gifted to the triumphant commander would walk behind him and whisper this phrase continually before crowning the victor at the end of the ceremony. We probably know it best in the modern day society as memento mori, It's a common phrase in a lot of different sci-fi pieces. It was used most recently in the Punisher show a couple of times, but was definitely brought back to life for the most part by Stoic Ryan Holiday and is a classic refrain from Epictetus, from Seneca, from Marcus Aurelius, and is generally considered like the calling card of Stoic philosophy. I, I really like it from Severo specifically because it appears to have a little bit more bite when you understand that the intent is for it to be a humbling phrase, like, dude, get out of your own fucking head, it's not that big of a deal, and and that kind of shit. Like that's clearly what he's playing into. But at the same time, it carries that historical weight that I'm sure that Darrow is imparting into it, which is, you know, Severo's doing it as like a jab, as a joke, but Darrow is internalizing that as the the weight of the crown that he carries.
1: Yeah, I and I, I think I think the weight of the phrase itself kind of lends itself to additional interpretations, but "memento mori" is, as far as I understand, based on like me not being a super like well-read Marcus Aurelius scho- scholar, but being connected to you who talk about stoicism all the time. Like "memento mori" is what I think of when I think of stoicism. So, having that phrase, but not being like intricately and uh, academically linked to it. I can think of so many different ways that it can be used without necessarily like falling in line with what it was actually intended to be used as, you know, it it is, it is is a vague phrase that has very specific connotations, but that only matters if, if both people listening to it or saying it are well-read enough to understand it. This this is interesting
0: because I totally agree with you. This almost feels like an inside joke or an inside commentary between Pierce Brown and the readers if you know that it's a stoic phrase. But he says it in English as opposed to saying it in Latin so that it still plays off kind of like the joke that it should.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it, it, there's a dichotomy there of... How you should approach the response to that phrase, and just really kind of digging into the character's backgrounds to understand what they would think of that phrase, without the necessary, like, without necessarily the popular connotation of what memento mori means in stoicism.
0: Yeah, no, exactly, exactly what you're saying. It's it's about the connotation of the moment, and it's not. It's it's an interesting, like, that entire paragraph plays kind of like a dual hander, where it's you know. If you know, you know. If you don't, it still works. Yeah. It's it's interesting, for sure.
1: It still works, but it could work in a way that's not necessarily like in line with the ideas of stoicism.
0: If we take it without any knowledge at all and you're just reading it, he's like, "Dude, remember you're just a guy <laughs> and you're
1: going to die." Is as far as like bringing it into like contemporary terms <clears throat> and contemporary as in like the last 5 years cuz this isn't that contemporary right now, but is YOLO just Memento Mori? Uh but, but with, um, with a little bit more like uh risk involved. Yeah, YOLO YOLO has
0: an implication of taking risk versus Memento Mori has the connotation of there's like a humble connotation of leaning before your life and understanding that your life is limited. So, like, YOLO means, like, let's go actively do said thing versus Memento Mori is a reflection of why don't you do things? Why don't you choose to celebrate
1: uh, moments or humbling itself as well? that feels like you could you could argue they're the exact same thing like I, i'm not saying that they necessarily are but you could argue it in that i think context is really important though. context like, is important could, but yolo
0: could be memento mori in a completely different society that didn't use it as a, a an escapist ploy to go do drugs in a bathroom
1: <laughs> you well, know i mean like, but what that what ancient roman didn't <laughs> want to go use drugs in a bathroom i feel like every one of them did
0: But, but Memento Mori wasn't said in that context. It was said by slaves to the conquerors, (laughs) you know,
1: like that's, that's the context. Do you think they didn't want to go do drugs in the bathroom? I think they did. My, my point is don't, don't watch life kind of pass you by. Live it. Kind of feels like the same core argument to be made. Yeah. But remember you are, but mortal is. Yeah. Like you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to reuse this time. Like you're going to die do something with your life.
0: Yeah, the it's so I guess the difference is, is it doesn't actually push you to say do something with your life, right? That's the difference between memento mori and yolo.
1: Yeah, is, it's is
0: the is the shove to do something proactive because memento mori is used in the context of this shouldn't bother me because I am only mortal and or or like this isn't my kind of stress or you know, I can only choose one thing, which also feeds into YOLO. So there there are components. There are definitely like if we're talking about a Venn diagram,
1: there are moments inside of the middle, but they don't perfectly overlap. I like to think if it's a Venn diagram, Memento Mori is like the big circle and YOLO is entirely encompassed by it. Yeah, that that also works. Actually, it would be a
0: what is that a concentric circle? Concentric.
1: YOLO fits into Memento Mori. But not entirely, like it doesn't entirely equate itself to it. Correct. Correct. It doesn't.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: We still have
0: to talk about showing up at the Senate chamber. Uh, So (laughs) Daryl walks into the Senate chamber, sees his wife. He's very happy. And 140 senators, some of which are not very happy. Yeah. But his wife, Mustang, very cute. Looking very cute today.
1: Essentially just says sup and he says sup. And that's the end. Basically, of the
0: <laughs> it's, it's just like, what's up, wife? What's up, husband? And that's, that's it. Yep. So we go into chapter two, though. Chapter two, which is again from Darrow's perspective, father. We're introduced right off the bat to Cedric Ku Plateau. And we get a look behind an interesting curtain. Despite a decade after upending the society, he himself still has trouble breaking habits. And I think that kind of speaks to the larger problem. That would linger post-revolution is that the the lower colors, the lower casts from gold are going to have a tough time changing behaviors. And I mean, yeah. that is only made very clear by the Dominus Sir bit that so happens.
1: It, I don't think it's necessary. It's been 10 years. I, I think the habits thing should have been passed by now. It, this reads more to me as kind of a meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of deal. Mm, an like, equivalence. Yeah. yeah. Like, yes, there was an overthrow, but from from his perspective, what's actually changed? Man, that's interesting, because
0: now you're dividing it by the high color line and the high colors maybe don't view it as a serious change. Well, no,
1: not necessarily color, though. That's the thing is it doesn't have to be by color. It can still just be by station without necessarily like all that happened. was you're not necessarily defined by your color, but hey, you're good at this. You're, and there's still classes so like you're you're not necessarily locked into this line of work as your color but i mean you're good at it so will you do this for us so
0: okay so what you're telling me is that quicksilver basically by being the father
1: of the sons of Ares, made himself a gold oh in- entirely but he kind of <laughs> was before anything anyway kind and of he w- yeah he was, just wasn't
0: respected as such
1: I, but i mean silver he was only not respected he was res- i don't know if i in- agree with that at all he was the most renowned silver hands down and was more renowned than most golds even within the peerless gold society he he was within the the top 0.1% of gold society i would say just from hmm. just just from the fact that he was Like he was the boss to at least one peerless scar. Yeah. Being Fitchner. Interesting. So I I think he had already kind of, I don't know what, I I don't know what more he would have gained by being a gold. And I feel like he would probably would have lost some of his power by being a gold instead of a silver, because his, his position as a silver gave him access to a whole lot more than he would have as just kind of a trust fund baby, you know?
0: Yeah, it also gives him an unambiguous drive to like push to the top, right? Inside of the silver class and then on top of that he doesn't have to abide by not only is he not a trust fund baby, but he doesn't have to abide by the gold standard of like familial warfare, right. which is which was clearly rampant in the previous society.
1: Yeah, uh, maybe a problem. Like maybe just it could, maybe could have been a little bit of a problem for some people
0: maybe maybe it like ended an entire bloodline like maybe the bologna's for the most part mm, there's maybe a couple of those left
1: we know there's at least two and I, I i only know one by name which is cassius but iona bologna just kidding iona bologna is alive and well in our hearts and on our <laughs> tongues but um but very headless she is quite headless. Makes tongue twisters kind of pointless, huh? Um, <laughs> but we know there's Cassius, and we know that there's a screaming eagle behind the Fury in the intro.
0: The other one that we know that is for sure alive is Julia, which is Cassius's mom.
1: Okay. Oh, I That's guess it. we don't technically know that uh, that the screaming eagle behind the, the Fury, which I can't remember her fucking name. I know it, it's like Atlantis a- or something like that yeah yeah
0: it atlania
1: atlania so there there's some peerless knight quote unquote with a screaming eagle standing behind her in that scene we don't technically know that it's not cassius but it doesn't feel like it's cassius yeah it doesn't
0: feel like it's cassius would agree because it would it would have a very different you you feel like they would have pictured his hair or something like that without saying his name they would have like given him some shape you know but yeah, this this entire color problem is is a huge deal as it's pertained. Like you said, it's it's just such a problem of a handoff that a like the higher colors definitely have. But also the the lower colors are still subservient in their own way. Right. Like Deanna Darrow still refers to the two people that are helping out in the garden as slaves like Darrow does or yeah, servants. It, I can't remember. I think I, it's, it's one servants. of the two, but either way. I want to yeah, say it ser- it, it's probably servants, but still, even servant isn't employee,
1: <laughs> you know, like it's, it's no servants, like
0: slight, slight. Well,
1: there's a slight difference. There's like, you're, you're, I, I think of whenever I mean, you hire a servant, it's just that's their station, that's their position. Their position <sighs> is servant to me, servant implies
0: indentured servitude as though they're paying something off. Um, I do understand where you're saying servant also potentially means that they're provided like housing and lodging inside of whatever but that still feels like it's not as politically advanced uh, or like societally advanced as i wanted the society to be you know the the republic post
1: society i don't know, you know if you can do that like i i i don't see a way
0: for once in reality are two very different things right i agree with you
1: right but just you you have a shit ton of your population who have been undereducated or uneducated entirely, you have such a large society that you need. Like, you need people to continue doing the work that has been done by slaves. Because otherwise, like, society as it is will cease to exist. And, like, there has to be some sort of transition. But you can't just go from... Slaves and and menial workers to everyone being on a level playing field because that's like that's just not how society works. It just won't work that way. You need you need the people on the bottom of the of the heap to keep doing what they're doing in order to keep keep everything going. You know.
0: Yeah, and I think that's also why Lyria's perspective is interesting is because ultimately. There's, she's the perspective of of what Deanna was warning against in Entirely. the original
1: trilogy. Entirely, it, like she is exactly what Deanna was war- warning against. But at at the same time, she is in a different place, and she would call it a worse place, and a lot of people would. But at the same time, a lot of people would say it's better. Either way, she's not making any fucking money. She's not making any difference. She's not doing anything for the. For the good of the society, herself individually, because she she wasn't a minor. like she she was just kind of what was she even a worker? Did she even do any work within the colony? I don't I don't yeah yet yeah, silk threads
0: that. I believe um because okay. I believe all most of the women were thread women.
1: Okay, well that makes a little bit of a difference, but that filled up her time, so she didn't have anything to worry about or. She didn't she didn't have time to worry about everything else, I guess, is where where I'm coming from with that.
0: Right. Which is where Darrow also opens up and briefly mentions a little bit later that, like, his mom was kind of abusive because of the loss of her father. Like, that was that was interesting. That was a wide swing that I didn't expect.
1: Yeah, it's it's just a was she better off? I I, I know she misses the mines but was she better off in the mines i don't know if that's the case yeah i don't think that's the case for anyone but
0: i don't think the assimilation camps are necessarily the they're best, not good right
1: they're not good by any stretch especially right, when but you they're- get an infighting of of the reds that came from different colonies and you have essentially a purging of her her clan so no, I I agree with you. What I think is really interesting is that the
0: and this is again this is skipping ahead a little bit. But within Lyria's perspective, right, she makes reference to all of the lambda folks who think that who act as though they're a part of Darrow's tribe, even though they're no more related to Darrow than they are a bat. I think is the terminology that she uses. Yeah. And so when you when you look at it through that lens, she's not related to the she's not similar to the gammas. It it's just that this mutual hate has flown out of so many different because there are thousands of different minds underground with all of these different societies, there are going to be groups, they've been they've been armed by society to hate each other because they're working towards earning the laurel and only one group gets the laurel. And so
1: Well, but we, we been, know we know that Gamma was working with or in some, in some respect, Gamma right, had, we, the, had the uh, sort of... Gamma and Lycos, favor, right? Gamma
0: in Lycos, for sure, had favor. Had the favor of the society. Right. Which, we don't hear her talk about that at all. It might not have been true in every mine. They probably pick mostly the, the mine that drives the highest average, right? That would make the most sense. from If you're looking from like a
1: copper-silver perspective, the way that they're going to manage that is like... No, it... it if you're going to do that, you're going to actually, like, award the laurel to the person that, like, provides the best, like, provides the most. Like, you're going to have a fair fight if you're actually going to reward actual, like, tangible uh, results. The, the, we, we we talked about this with uh, with Alia and how, like, across every color, the society has a favorite slave. True. I would have agreed with you without that sort of perspective of the fact that Alia was in like Alia knew everything. She was in conversation with the golds, but felt yeah, like I guess give, like, I guess we just don't get that from Lyria, right? No, because like she's, she's she's not part of the leadership. But she was living yeah. effectively and relationally, kind of a cushy life within the mines, being part of gamma. We don't we don't really We don't necessarily know that. Know that.
0: But I, I see what you're saying when you extract it from the Lycos situation. When, when you're like, when you extrapolate from what we know about what was going on in Lycos, that makes
1: sense. So right. she, she was not I'll bend from a little Lycos? Bit. No, Lagalos. She was from Lagalos. And Gamma, is there any actual familial connection to Gamma of Lycos?
0: No, that, that, was, that was the whole point about the, the Lambda house. Claiming as though they are related when they were not related at all.
1: Okay, because
0: a lot of the Reds are not related.
1: I'd be curious if there was a similar structure with Gamma in in
0: their mind. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think we can we can chat more about that when we get to Lyria. Let's let's wrap up with the, the man. This episode today is all over the place. We've got a lot to talk about inside of Darrow's perspective, and I'm super glad that we're having these these complex conversations about the color and the hierarchy and the systems because i think that really comes to the front of the story to some degree at the beginning of iron gold is the way that a lot of the shit actually works or doesn't work and functions which is part of the reason that i i love this book is it feels like it's a class on ethics and philosophy at first yeah which is cool
1: yeah entirely it does so,
0: and then the children, right? We, we go from Cedric to the children, and I love how casually Severo and Darrow bet the war trophies, like trading cards to gamble with on small things. And Darrow's kind of like not feigning interest. He's, he's kind of like feigning interest. He's like, no, I'm not going to give that away for that. Like, no big deal. I'm not going to do that for that. But if you gave me the, the ivory tree of Falthy, maybe... <laughs> Maybe I'd do it. And then they, he takes the bet. And it's just to me, that's that is a moment where you finally see Darrow and Severo again as they were before. And
1: it kind of, it just feels good. It's just it's a good moment. I mean, he loses anyway, right? Darrow does lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I loved the the tree and the description of it. Initially, I thought it was like an ornately carved tree made of ivory. But it turns out it was just a fucking tree that Saffron stole from a house in in on Earth. Yeah, which is hilarious. It's it's so good. I, I want to see his trophy room. I really do. That would be a great
0: thing to see, right? Especially after the 10 years of conquest that they've both been through. And no doubt they've been betting on other shit over time. Oh, and they've course. traded trophies back and forth. This feels like a clear hint at that. We also get our first introduction, really, to Electra and Pax, the children of these two madmen and... They're very intelligent wives. (laughs) Um, What did you think of the kids?
1: So Electra was feral, like brutally feral with like one person who has tamed her and that's Severo. Yeah, that's like she she is stone faced and just brutal, like jumps into Severo's arms when they when they hug Pax is definitely more reserved. Uh, there there's obviously the fact that Darrow's been gone a lot that lends itself to not a like super warm relationship between him and him and his son but obviously we see sort of the warm relationship between Severo and his daughter I think Darrow more than Severo like Severo seems like a broken person in a broken kind of personality but he is who he is, and I, I think he's come to grips with that. He 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 he's fully understood who he is, and he's embraced it, and he's allowed himself to be like just jovially free with his children, child, whatever. Does he have more than one? He has more than one, right?
0: Severo? or yeah, Severo, Severo has three daughters right now with a fourth on the way. Right.
1: Whereas Darrow, even though like he he's been gone and just absent in general from Pax's life. And he seems to kind of use that as an excuse, but he hasn't. like he He is historically very kind of in his head and hasn't been able to be honest with himself about who he is and what he thinks and what he does. So I think that kind of feeds into the distance that he feels between him and his son. Especially what, like, especially because he knows, like, he, he talks about being away, but we know that Severo is, he's away at the same time, in in the same way, in the same station. There's something more to the to the distance between him and Pax than just just the distance itself. Oh man, you killed it!
0: That was so good. Yeah, I got. I've. I have nothing to add there. There is there is a strange sort of foreign aspect to Pax and Darrow's relationship that I think that you you described well. And there is a why. Meanwhile, we get the comparison and the dichotomy of the familiarity of Electra and Severo.
1: Like if, if Darrow's not going to be open with himself about who he is, he's not going to be open with his son about who he is. And Severo Truth. is unabashedly Severo oh man
0: what a good call it's as though darrow's lying for years and years and years may be impacted his personal relationships in the long term yeah yeah <laughs> who would have thought interesting who would have who thought that maybe not changing your behavior earlier mm-hmm. and choosing to yourself not being forced out that's the interesting thing right darrow was forced out darrow never chose to reveal his heritage or anything else he he was forced to the yeah. only person he chose to reveal it to was Ragnar and and Mustang. He did tell Mustang. But te- I mean, and that makes kind sense of. for their relationship. He did.
1: He did tell Mustang. He was very open with Mustang. Very. He told Mustang. I don't I wouldn't call him very. I, I wouldn't say he was very open with Mustang.
0: <clears throat> well, I don't think there are a whole lot of lies between him and Mustang.
1: No, but but there it, I I never once got the idea that anytime several Jesus Anytime Darrow, um, talked about who he was and talked about him being a red and talked about like overthrowing the, the sovereign, I never got the idea that it was just to bring somebody into the fold. That's fair. That's fair. It it always seemed like I need this person. So shit, I've got to tell him what's going on. That
0: is very much the the sort of rationale, especially even with Ragnar to some degree, right? Is it wasn't I need this person, but it was like I want him to be the leader. With Mustang, it was definitely I need this person.
1: Ragnar's um, the one kind of exception to the rule, a little bit. Yeah, right. Or right. the closest thing to an exception. Yes, um, he needed yeah. Ragnar from the jump. He needed him on his side. But at the but same he time, he could have taken like, a different obsidian. There, there was there was some genuine feelings with ragnar when he was telling him it
0: yeah there's there's a level of honesty with ragnar that is absent most other places with Dara. correct so great read on the kids great great read talking about that we once again run into the telemanis women just some over thoughts on uh on what you have on them and also the way that the kids are being raised right in these like little packs of nine which is Oh, I don't know, maybe a little bit better than a murder gladiatorial dome where, you know, they kill each other in 12 separate houses for uh, for supremacy.
1: I kind of want that to happen still, though. (laughs) Of course. It was compelling fiction. Well, yes, it was compelling (laughs) fiction. Of course it is.
0: (laughs) That's why people love the Hunger Games. (laughs) Right. Exactly. People love this shit.
1: Let it keep going. You've already got the battlefields.
0: What do you think about Thraxa and Naobi?
1: <laughs> I already talked a little bit about Thraxa in that I feel like she fills a similar role as, uh, holiday did just kind of the stern goal oriented and brutal, like strong woman. Yeah. Naomi, I feel like I, I'm, I'm excited to see more of her. There's, <laughs> there's a lot more of a softness to her, but at the same time, she is, she seems incredibly intelligent. I, I just, I, I feel like I haven't gotten enough with her to really get a grasp on who she is. Not that I've gotten a great grasp on Thraxa either, but she seems to be a little yeah. bit more where your heart on your sleeve as far as personality goes.
0: That's, that's definitely, I, I think it's a good comparison um, and a good read of the two of them. It's interesting to think that Niobe is married to
1: Cavax, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> that's that's an interesting thing, right? Like, <laughs> I really hadn't thought about that that much yet. Um, I know from Aaron from the last podcast that Cavax is not in this story at all, so bump, bump. I don't think it matters, and I think we should just ignore that relationship. Entirely. Sure. That that
0: dynamic no longer exists. We've yep. hand waved it away.
1: We've hand waved it away. Um Sophocles, I think, probably uh is just a background character that we see on the fringes whenever Pierce decides to mention that Sophocles is smelling some old lasagna in the fridge or something like that. I don't know.
0: Smelling some old <laughs> lasagna in the fridge. Love it. It's good. We're good. Clears. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I, I mean, man, I really like that. We already talked a little bit about Diana or Deanna, but I just want to make mention of the, the fact that she feels kind of penitent and she definitely like penitent for the life that she has now and kind of the recovery and the medicine that she's access to because she's Darrow's mother, not because, but also in spite of the plight of the Reds, right? Because not all of the Reds, as we learn a little bit later, are doing that well.
1: It's it's interesting. I still think she's the big bad. <laughs> and now, like like letting the dragon go and getting a full night's rest to regain their hit points, we have uh, we have let Deanna overcome some of the uh, some of the the plaguing aspects of the stroke that she had in the past. So I, I, I think um, Darrow needs to take caution, and he needs to realize that this woman who may have raised him is going to be too powerful for him to overcome could be dangerous could be dangerous (laughs) what a what a
0: prediction pj i'm so glad (laughs) that you're convinced that deanna is the villain of the story (laughs) i can't believe i didn't talk you down off that ledge when it
1: happened originally but here we are i mean we know that pierce brown is having trouble writing the sixth book he just scrapped whatever he's been working on. It's not going to come out this year. It's because he hasn't realized that Deanna's the big bad. But I got you, Mr. Brown. I got you. She's right there. That- oh, man. The secret, real, original leader of the
0: Sons of Aries the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> just, and, But also playing on the sovereign side. You know, Deep, deep, long game hardball. I mean, I could see that being faked. I mean, anything and everything. (laughs) Okay. Maybe stretch that too far. Okay. Uh, But dancer is also working and toiling in the same garden that she is. And that begins. Okay. So thinking about dancer, they have this conversation about the war effort and a number of other things. And they, they have this very open conversation about kind of power um, and power dynamics inside of the society. That being that Darrow is not an elected official first and foremost. And is disobeying the orders of the elected officials. He perhaps did the right thing by taking Mercury, but did not do the right thing by disobeying the orders. Did the right thing in his own mind by making the executive action. But what do you think? What do you think about the complex situation that Darrow and Dancer find themselves in?
1: Well, I think I think there's a little bit of some strange strange dynamics that they both find themselves in in that dancer has been advocating for and working towards the overthrow of the government that they found themselves found themselves under the rule of and now now that that's been overthrown he's suddenly a part of the government that kind of took its place whereas darrow while he's like an important figure within the republic he's not a senator so he is still kind of like he he hasn't he hasn't been exposed to the same responsibility that would change his mind about the way to handle authority. And I, I'm not going to try to make any sort of argument on who's right here, but Dancer has conceded that his, his overthrow of power has ended and we need to create power in the vacuum that we've created Whereas Darrow, he killed the sovereign, but his, his, approach has always been a little bit, um, counter to, uh, to authority in pretty much every way. So it, it, it's tough to draw that comparison. Darrow seems to be still kind of acting in the same way that he was before the overthrow of this, of, of the society. Whereas dancer has come to grips with the fact that they've planted a new a new power structure over the top of the corpse of the society. Yeah,
0: and and they basically like I I think that's a great read on it. Like just implanting this kind of faux organization on the top layer makes a lot of sense. And also the trouble is right the vox populi or this this other group the, uh, of low colors or assumed low colors probably have a similar opinion to the Sons of Ares, but less less extreme and more of, like... If we extrapolate Dancer's opinion from the first series, Dancer had the opinion that Gold's should not be allowed to continue to rule or continue to be in any position of yeah. power.
1: There is the, uh, there's the... There's a statement somewhere in here. I'm not sure if it's in this area. I, I'd assume it would be. Where Dancer would call for a representative per like per capita of of color which would mean there'd be like 500 representatives of all the low colors to one representative gold y- yes just strictly from population right right the
0: the population representation right
1: i i'm sure i'm butchering mm-hmm. but i'm pretty sure it was 500 to 1 and i'm pretty sure it yeah. was based on population of gold to not gold
0: yeah well right because the low colors are that way yeah i mean obviously like if you think about the reds they they greatly outnumber everyone else and so the representation is misrepresentative because every color has 10 you know if, if you think about it, it's the way that people think about like the senate in wyoming right like wyoming is two senators they shouldn't have two senators that's the same amount of power um
1: i mean but, but they like, have fewer house they, they have fewer represent uh, representatives, right? Correct.
0: We've, we've got a bicameral house, which is a little bit different. This is a single camera, um, but yeah, yeah. It, but the point stands, I guess, is kind of the, the comparison is what I meant.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. for, for sure. Entirely.
0: I, I think that it's great to end this chapter on the line. You know what I mean? The Senate was elected. You were not. And kind of that obvious power difference, even between admittedly close friends and as they like hold each other's hands walking through the the meadow. So, we've already talked about a lot of the politics of the sort of Vox Populi and things like that. We do enter Chapter 3, Darrow, the fantasy. From the perspective of Victra re-entering the picture as very pregnant. We get a nice dinner with a lot of the friends. Balder, the obsidian friend of Pax, is still around. He's the one who pours Victor's wine. Um, there's, there's a lot there that's just homey a lot of this a lot of this chapter feels very warm like a hearth
1: yeah Yeah.
0: it does yeah but we've already chatted quite a bit about the the various politics that happen here the only maybe add is that Victra's sort of semi-anti-union stance is interesting and i think it speaks to the the sort of prevailing dominant class thing that would obviously happen from a ruling class being changed into an equal class, but not having their capital changed, right? Because they're still they're still in charge of the companies. They're they're still trust fund kids in their own way. They're, it's inherited wealth, so right. You know, it's not like that changes overnight. No, it doesn't. Certainly, it's it's an interesting point. It's obviously contentious for Victra, but
1: yeah, but Victra kind of she's always shown that side of her. Whenever she's had access to power, she has flaunted it. Even even when she was just a member of the Rebel uh, Sons of Ares group, as opposed to being a full fledged member of the <laughs> the new like government, she gets drunk on power really fucking easily. But she still maintains sure. like she she doesn't necessarily uh, adopt malice, but she does she does lead her company in kind of a tight way
0: yes in in tight you mean she is lean. being very like yes yeah okay yeah yeah um i was i was gonna lean into that that definition a little bit lean haha ha. yeah yeah great
1: does that does that like it, it strike, totally makes sense it, true a little bit
0: yeah i i think that it makes sense i mean she's she's obviously she's trying to run as profitable a thing as possible right and she's hitting this roadblock with a point in the compact which is that everyone is allowed to unionize which it makes sense um, and, you know, is a right especially of, of a, an oppressed several genuses of, of humanity that are have been separated by centuries of genetic modification by this ruling class. They certainly have the right to unionize that <laughs> should not be like should not be removed from them because they have been, you know, disrespected for so long. And collective bargaining seems like the least we could do, <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, that's pretty true.
0: Yeah, I I just wanted to not skip over that. I know we've talked about a lot of the other political components here. So I I like the little bit where we switch here to uh, talking about something that totally skipped my brain the first time. It just didn't connect. And I thought that it was maybe it was maybe fake because of the the names and whatnot. And it was just meant to be implied. But uh, Daxo says it was a bit like a Hieronymus Bosch painting come alive describing Quicksilver's posse going to, I think, the theater Bosch. Is a Dutch artist from the late 1400s to the early 1500s, which is interesting from a time frame perspective because I forget that like art is fascinating in the way that it's really timeless, like really good art. And Bosch is a really good artist. There's some
1: fucking weird
0: shit in his it's, paintings. It is it is very strange. Um, highly recommend hitting his Wikipedia page to so just check out some of the standard fare. But his paintings remind me of the sort of absurdist art within monty python and the holy grail the sort of cross scenes that were done by i I think terry gilliam did those he was entirely in charge of those but those those sort of like weird scenes where like the giant foot would come out and sort of the exaggerated features of noses and eyebrows on like the monks and and things like that that Mm -hmm. that kind of became part and parcel but not comical like not exaggerated for comedy but exaggerated for drama i don't know the the contrast sake yeah for drama on on the canvas it's crazy but the reason that he's compared here is because he paints moments of decadence and posses in particular he paints small groups very well which is what daxo is pointing to Mm
1: -hmm. yeah but at the same time i liken the, the first time i saw some of his paintings we were we were together kind of looking over some of them I likened it to almost a uh, like a Photoshop clip art kind of vomit over a page done much more, much better than that. But every individual like subject is separate. It does not seem to like blend together between subjects. They they are busts of people that are just kind of plopped on a page one in front of the other
0: yeah that one was really really interesting
1: that sort of style seemed to uh penetrate through most of what i saw
0: yeah yeah because you're you're talking about the the i think it's jesus at palante painting right so the one with the
1: specifically yes that one is yeah aggressive but but that feeds
0: that feeds into everything else that he did too um we're not art critics by any means but it felt i am it felt obvious (laughs)
1: I'm I'm looking upwards with my nose upturned at the at the screen and the (laughs) microphone. No, I'm not a fucking art critic.
0: But but it seemed it's that seemed like a very obvious and easy read on the entire piece as a whole. Like it seemed. Yeah, it seemed like that was clearly something he was going for was sort of the the hard edges on a number of people's faces. And then sort of Jesus himself had a very soft face which was interesting. It felt like they were plucked from individual portraits, like you said.
1: Mm-hmm. Like It felt like somebody went through ye olde uh, Time magazine and clipped out people's <laughs> portraits. It's so taped true. Them a, taped them to a canvas.
0: And I think that speaks to the truly absurd moments that we're comparing it to with monty python little sketch bits that happen in between mm-hmm. where god shows up with his big face and his jowls drop in the <laughs> puppeteering kind of way you know exactly yeah so <clears throat> lorne i mean darrow <laughs> almost <laughs> feels like lorne um, in, in these moments <laughs> because man you the way that me darrow there. reflects really on these, me <laughs> that's that's so good.
1: Was, uh, yeah. Well done. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I just find it so funny because Darrow feels so, so close to Lorne in these moments. He feels so similar. There's so many overlapping traits, and I can't help but think that this is exactly what Lorne was thinking, but with extra decades of experience. Just exacerbated to the extreme, yeah. Which is why he was so protective of his family ultimately, and that's where he chose Darrow in that moment, knowing that he was gold. Mm-hmm. But specifically, the line "This is how life should be: this peace, this laughter." You know, I think that's the the thing that any war hero would strive for is is those times at home, but knowing potentially that you have to go back out there, and that's yeah. that's sort of the fantasy and the dread behind this entire chapter.
1: I don't know it off the top of my head. But I feel like this is probably a fairly well-explored trope of an active warrior with a family, as far as literature goes.
0: I wish it was. Um, better, at the very least, in uh, in fantasy and sci-fi. I don't think it's as well-explored. Oh, but I'm not definitely,
1: talking fantasy sci-fi. I'm talking more like historical, like hero's journey kind of deal.
0: I, I would definitely hope so. I just haven't had that experience personally in, in my reading there's only one other character that approaches this that i can think of actively in the things that i've read and i don't want to talk about it because we're going to read that book series eventually
1: okay i was going to say it it kind of reminds me of odysseus yeah at a core level i'm assuming that's not what we're going to read
0: no no we're not going to read the odyssey i do i do understand where you're coming from there though Uh, so many of these stories of course are based on odysseus and, and sort of that
1: i mean just journey hear, heroes journeys journey. in general right i mean there's uh, joseph campbell's yeah there's odysseus there's fucking uh oh what's starts with a g like one of the first published like works of fiction
0: shit the, like gilgamesh like the legend of gilgamesh gilgamesh
1: yeah. yes that's the one i'm thinking Got it. Of.
0: yeah Gil- gilgamesh is definitely you're you're right no no doubt. I'm just trying to think of, you know, I, I'm thinking contemporary. I'm thinking oh, contemporary yeah. fantasy. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking a lot of those things. Cause obviously there's so much foundational stuff that's there, especially the Odyssey is a great example. The closest that I can think of is there's some Michael Crichton books that can deal with this, but it's not it's not a it's not a galaxy spanning thing. It's not like we're talking about in Alexander the Great in fiction, you know? And we kind of With Darrow, we kind of are talking about an Alexander the Great sort of character, sort of conqueror. I mean, yeah, we basically are. Yeah. I love the way that this chapter ends in the soft moment with Mustang asking Darrow to consider retiring and reflecting that these should be everyday moments, not occasional memories, that these like happy times should be forgettable and they should have so many of these logged that it doesn't need to be its own slide in the slideshow. It should be lost in the abyss of slides. And I, I really, for whatever reason, this time this chapter hit me particularly hard. And the sort of way that you might like lie casually to someone you love to indulge their fantasy temporarily, just I don't know, it just hit. But then there's that like moment of acceptance that you have, where you just know that it can't be that way. And that's that's where you know Darrow kind of ends most of this chapter with right where he says. We played the game far too long to walk away. I take her hand, my wife is quiet and the fantasy drips away. Our familiar friend, Dread, creeps onto the balcony with us because deep inside in the shadowy chasms of ourselves, we know that Lorne was right. For those who dine with Warren Empire, the bill always comes at the end. And wow. It's just a sharp ending to what I feel like is a very it, it's a more deeply emotional moment than i think we've had in the series there there are there are emotional moments that are very emotional because they're earned through through dramatic over time drama over time and payoff like the the end of roke's life for instance but there this is one of the most immediate visceral moments without all of the prelude
1: at the same time it comes uh, comes across as a little bit overly dramatic because there hmm. there is no uh there's no speaking of how can we finish this off and how can I tie up the loose ends so we can get to our goal of like having this be our everyday life? It, it is essentially, I will be doing this until I'm dead. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily the uh, the right way to look at it either. It, it seems like there could be a middle ground that Dare was overlooking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He, he's definitely staring at the extremes. Um, I don't know. If there really is a middle ground for him, I think that there is a retirement path for Mustang, though, like Mustang could step out of being the sovereign.
1: Yeah, but being the sovereign doesn't seem to be the dangerous position comparatively. It Yeah, it doesn't seem to be the absent position. I would change dangerous to absent. No, I, no, it's, I, it's, I, it's I almost dangerous. Well, Dar- I, Dar- I know that you like, meant dangerous. Darrow is putting his life on the line despite having a family. And that, that's taking a toll on him. But he's he doesn't seem to be putting anything forward to try to, like, get past that part of his life.
0: So, definitely understand the point of what you're saying and where you're coming from. I think what I'm trying to clarify is that I don't feel like Mustang is so worried about him surviving so much as it is about the life that they could have at home. Right? And so... Mustang, for the most part, is unwilling to give up the Sovereignship mostly because she knows that she can help her husband, it seems, right? And that's why they kind of – the dread and the fantasy sets in and washes away everything is because she probably won't give up that position of power so long as Darrow is out there because then she can have some kind of influence over his safety and security, even if it's not perfect, you know?
1: I I get that, and I this is going to come across a little bit cold. But if Darrow was of the mind that he's never going to stop fighting and never going to stop being on the front line of 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 this, not just in in like wartime, but in hypothetical peacetime as well. I get that he has Pax as a son, but it doesn't make logical sense to me that he would he would go through with marrying Mustang and starting a family. It seems like the more logical choice to let her raise the child without him because he is constantly going to be at risk of being lost.
0: Yeah, but there's always the hope that it could be different, right?
1: But he's, he's resigned, like, he's completely resigned himself to the to the fact that it could be different. He has not put forward the idea that it could be different. Neither has she.
0: Correct. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that that is, that is also, PJ, agree with you. I think that's the dread washing over and erasing the fantasy they both believe in the fantasy uh but inevitably the fantasy comes to an end when reality seeps back in and changes
1: i'm going to nitpick a little bit and i know it's i know your meaning is the same as what i'm going to say they don't believe in the fantasy they they hope for and want the fantasy but they're they're doing nothing to try to fulfill it they they're basically just saying ah wouldn't that be nice all right uh go rain hellfire down on another planet see ya see you next year
0: yeah i but i do think i do think there's something interesting because this this fantasy is cited as being a repeated fantasy that they have but it feels like this was maybe the based on the conversation that they have it maybe felt like the most earnest version and adding in the weight of pax from the previous chapter really starting to become a person and and having a lot of negative feelings towards his father that kind of complicates it a little bit more i think but i do understand what you're saying where they're they've already pretty much accepted the fact that things aren't going to change mustang is basically softballing it softball pitching it even though she knows she can't stop her husband you know right she's not going to stop him and i i think that this also gets back to uh, Uh, A quote that Lauren said, I think it was in, it was obviously in Golden Sun. It's the only book Lauren's in, (laughs) technically. He's technically in Red Rising. He doesn't really say anything. But Lauren said something along the lines of, there's no peace for men like us. And that is exactly what this is. There's no chance that Darrow. Now that he's committed to this life and this lifestyle, ever since that moment in Golden Sun when he didn't take the escape route and decided to take a different life, he has been on the warpath and cannot turn around. We leave Darrow for the week and Mustang for the week reflecting in the vote that is now being rushed to the floor by Dancer, which leaves all kinds of questions in the air. It does indeed. So with that, we move into chapter four, Lyria. Welcome to the world's. Our first new character, Lyria. We talked about her earlier, of course. She's a Gamma girl with a large red family. I really love the line, Welcome to the Worlds. It's this sort of like casual refrain throughout this first section as though perfect liberation and salvation for the Reds has arrived in the form of Darrow's uprising and the liberation of Mars. And she gives a wonderful jaded perspective on that whole thing.
1: Yeah, she does. She gives a, up until this point, Entirely unique perspective. We haven't seen sort of a firsthand account of the negative things that happened in a refugee camp, and uh, she her her life is r- rife with them, <laughs> rife with starvation, rife with a number of things. So it, I mean
0: this this really made me feel like, especially the beginning of this chapter when she starts at like sixteen or seventeen. She I think it's sixteen. She starts the chapter at sixteen. It made me feel like very fallout, like escaping the the vault right you escape into this world and you've been given all of this different dialogue and you come out and you find out that everything is lies as she says herself that was two years and a thousand broken promises ago like wow i mean yeah yep (laughs) and welcome to the world is really welcome to a tent that you're going to live in
1: for a very long time but at least it's not a mine
0: yeah but you also don't have like a life to live oh man entirely that was mostly sarcastic we find out a little bit more about lyria too she's a gamma from the mine of lagalos gamma was a clan with fucking gammas (laughs) yes fucking gammas gamma was a clan within lycos but also within every other single mine um, within Lycos, they were the ones that were constantly at the throat of Lambda for the Laurel, continu- continually winning it. We learn all about her brothers, nephews, father, mom, the whole family, and how she does her best to support everyone as kind of the focal point of the family after her mother passes away. Mm-hmm. I I really like the line, I used to think my world is permanent because I think it's so excellent at describing the that single line I think does such a good job of describing the loss of innocence really within her character. We've we've barely been introduced to her and we already know that she's been stripped of something that she had before over the last 2 years. And that's that's stripped away from her because she has to take care of her family.
1: Yeah. Her dad who's kind of suddenly a potato.
0: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) this this gets into chapter five. These two chapters blend together fairly decently. Uh, Chapter five, camp one twenty one, which is assimilation camp one twenty one, which is such a friendly name. But talking about her dad, the the sort of like death of her father after the passing of her mother is some incredibly relatable writing. It is so common with old married couples that you just wish. That they could avoid this sort of pain that exists when they're separated from their long-term partner, but I felt like it was so well described. That the line is, "I, I don't recognize this man, this creature wearing my father's skin." It's
1: visceral. Yeah, it is. It's really, really well said, uh, but understandable at the same time. Like th- this is somebody who has, because he, he goes like he goes basically comatose after moving out of the mines. Correct. Yeah. Yep. So he has lost his entire life and then also lost his his lifelong partner. So it's it's hitting even harder than it would normally, you know? Definitely, definitely
0: because there's there's just this extra layer, extra element that it, like he is kind of choosing to be this way, but he's also out of work, which was so he he like lost two foundational components to himself almost at the same time. And that's why he kind of like melts down into this nothing burger of a person <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is because of that. And I think that's why she's so resentful. You brought this up in our pre-show, but she uses the word this creature and you, you made a really good point about that being so dehumanizing to yeah. what he is.
1: Yeah. It, it's entirely dehumanizing, but at, at the same time, uh, there's a parallel to the, to the phrase creature comforts in that he has lost his wife, he's lost his life, he's lost basically fucking everything. He, he's essentially just vegetative. Does it ever say what he's actually doing every day? Is he sitting in front of the TV? Is he, or the hollow cube? Is he just laying in bed? Is he comatose? Is he just kind of absent? I can't recall.
0: It, it does. Okay, so the, the section that we already talked about was, I don't recognize this man, this creature wearing my father's skin. It just eats and shits and sits there watching the HC. Still, I shove the anger away, feeling guilty for it, and kiss him on the forehead. I tuck his blanket in a little bit under his bearded chin and thank the veil, there's no soil in his diaper.
1: I mean, he's he's a vegetable, essentially. and Almost by choice. Seemingly by choice. To some degree. Exactly. Yeah. Which is tough to deal with. But not necessarily unheard of. It just, it, it seems, it seems like she thinks it was in his control. And I'm curious if that's the case. Yeah. Or if he's actually just effectively brain dead.
0: Right. Man, it's, it's a tough section to even think about to some degree. Because he... Like we said earlier, he was stripped of his identity in both the fact that and, and his entire worldview where he was. a He thought that the room, uh, the the roof over their head that was the rim of the mine was the sky. And when they go outside, he he loses his job. He gains a perspective that there are other worlds than these. He there's loses a world his on top life, of the world shortly thereafter. Yeah. Yeah. And everything changes for him all at once. You know, you can't blame him. And at the same time, you can be really fucking mad at him and definitely blame him for putting this all in Lyria because she is now responsible for all of the other siblings in varying degrees. I mean, there are some, she has some older brothers, but she's also now taking care of some nephews of her sisters because she has to go.
1: Shouldn't this all be handled by the man of the house?
0: (laughs) Good, good joke. Good joke. (laughs) Speaking of Tyrion, um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there in a moment. But man, I, I think this also feeds into kind of the the sort of trope that happens a little trope, very loosely that happens with her off the bat with uh, with the nephews watching the and talking about how and and her kind of lying to them and talking about how yes, your dad is definitely out there fighting with Darrow and uh, Orion and everyone else and warlock too, uh, kind of in a, in a positive way to sell the war to them and spin it to them. It's a very, it reminds me so much of like CS Lewis and a lot of those kind of mm. moments talking about the war and things like that. Yeah. Feels, that. It, it feels like tropey, but it, it's well, well done. Really, really like kind of the, the imprint of false hope and hopes and dreams. So they go to bed thereafter and there's there's a disturbance in the night that sounds like a ship flying overhead, the, and Tyrion and a number of the other people in the area believe that it could be something else, including her sister with the two nephews, and so they decide, Tyrion and Lyria decide that they're going to investigate, but Lyria needs to actually get dressed or prepare to go, and so there's the man of the house line of course that's there it's like I'll go take care of it I'm the man of the house Uh, and she's like no 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 you fucking moron don't do that she like laughs so uh, loud
1: at him scoffs at him
0: yeah right right like very literally her last interaction with her brother is laughing at him for trying to overstep these boundaries and because of that same foolishness he dies very tragically well sorry because
1: of the the foolishness and because of uh one of our good old friends from the first book
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's worth talking about what do you make of the mysterious
1: group the red hand (laughs) i mean clearly clearly it is the uh the evolution of the red legion which Mm -hmm. if i will say so myself red legion's a way better name
0: I feel like the red hand gives a very feels more terroristy. Legion
1: feels more army. Legion feels more villain. Hand feels more band of loosely connected adversary. I don't know. That's the feeling I'm getting off of it. But yeah, I didn't catch it until you pointed it out that uh, the person being described is certainly fucking harmony. <sighs> they're burned up dude burned out face it it almost feels bad that i had to do that but at the same
0: time i missed it in my first and second read throughs of this when when i was just reading through iron gold before dark age um and i didn't really realize it until a certain section in dark age where lyria references this again where where this is referenced i should say it's not necessarily referenced by it might be referenced by volga you don't know Yeah, where this was referenced inside of Dark Age, and I just went, oh, oh shit, of course, of course it's Lyria. That makes so much sense. Or, of course, it's Harmony. Jesus Christ. And all the dots just connected for me and lined up, and I was like, oh, fuck, I get it. Why didn't I catch that the first time inside of this? And... Yeah, part of that is because of the POV switch, though, right? Like, that's part of the magic of, of having multiple POVs, yeah. is now there's some dramatic irony where you and I might recognize something that a character might not. It's not as though Lyria can put a name to Harmony, but we can
1: put a name to Harmony. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I hadn't considered that. Any Anything else on Lyria? So, if anybody knows me from this from this show. I love like my process of reading the section and then listening to the audiobook of the section and I think I'm going to forgo the audiobook going forward. You warned me of this, but I man, it is not the same, specifically with Leary. <laughs> not that interesting. I didn't like the the way her her voice was read. Our final chapter
0: of this episode, Uh, chapter six, Ephraim, the eternal or eternal city. And we get our third point of view for the book. We know based on that, the uh, the prelude that they're going to be at least four. But God damn it. Do I love Ephraim's internal voice? Yeah, sir. He's he's just got this crazy cadence to him. I I love this quote that's just right off the bat. It's, my main grudge against the ancient Egyptians isn't that they pioneered the institution of mass slavery for public works. It's that they were so damn tiny. And it just, it's got this nice, like, bitter
1: tone to it that a lot of his humor has, and... I adore that. So my speaking of that quote, my favorite quote is like the next sentence, uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is also kind of bitter and dark a little bit. But he refers to the mummy that he uh, uh, would you call it desecrated, removing them from their sarcophagus? I, I think that'd be desecration. Technically, yeah,
0: I, w- I would think so. Especially uh, if you if you take into consideration the religion,
1: <laughs> re- referring to that mummy as a raisin <laughs> that he still smells after uh, completing his journey.
0: If if nothing else, Ephraim has a holy personality.
1: Mm-hmm. He's,
0: he's he's just so interesting yowie. on on that yeah. front.
1: I'm excited. I'm really excited about getting into him. He is not an orange. That fixes <laughs> escalators or elevators. Elevators. He's uh, not an elevator operator. He's not. Despite what I thought, he seems uh, less less cool than that. Not everybody can be an elevator operator, so I get it. You know, you say
0: that, and I just can't <laughs> help but think that maybe there's an alternate life where Ephraim and Trigg lived happily ever after as a- elevator operators, and I think Aaron would be in on that with me.
1: yeah i think she probably
0: god god damn it do i also love that we hit this low to the ground view of a city within the republic and especially being this kind of sprawling metropolis that is hyperion it's so cool to hear the description of the the named eternal city one that predominantly stays in the sun or in the night depending on the day cycle because it takes 29 earth days for a full day on the moon it's just it's so cool as it's described yeah What what a unique system to, and to like truly talk about it and embrace it as a writer to like think about the actual moon cycle and how that would impact the city is fascinating.
1: I mean, it's pretty trivial to think about the the moon cycle waxing and waning and waxing again, um, taking about a month, but... Applying that understanding to what it means to like have a city on the moon is entirely different.
0: Just so cool. I, I'm so glad that we get this this kind of low to ground perspective that even Ben was Ben was hinting at and talking about. We're also introduced to Zolodone, a wicked cocktail meant to jack up dopamine and kill empathy, and effectively bury with our Ephraim here with F. It buries the memories of Trig.
1: Yeah. I mean, and man it, it is that seems to just kind of bury any sort of emotion mm-hmm. and, and Trig's memory, as far as I can understand, is basically entirely emotional for yeah. Ephraim. Understandably, like it's who he was. It's who, who Trig was for him. And just, they like that relationship in retrospect, at least is almost entirely emotional.
0: I love that Ephraim goes from, you know, kind of these, these moments of like Zolodone and other things like that. To the kind of, I I think the mastery of Zolodone from a writing perspective and, and this drug is really how we see how Ephraim was before that with all of these emotions to kind of the deadening of him as he takes this into the second half. How his perspective is really warped and changed by the drug over the course of this chapter, even it's like we almost have two different characters split between before he takes the Zolodone and after.
1: So the way that you just described that, I'm curious, do you think that he was more emotional before before any sort of experience with Zolodone or the loss of Trig or anything like that? So you're
0: talking about the long-term impacts potentially of Zolodone? Yeah,
1: exactly. Do you, that's do you, interesting. Do you think that's something that's been affecting him in a long-term way? I mean, I think
0: any drug like this, which is described as a particularly addic- addictive drug designer drug has long-term impacts what those impacts are I'll let the story tell you but I think regardless it's a good read to to pick that out
1: yeah I'm, I'm not necessarily trusting Ephraim to be who he has been who, who he's been presented to be in previous books.
0: Well, he's he's kind of an unreliable narrator, right? Like, a little bit later, he he says something along the lines, he's, he's reflecting on his past, and he's just got this, I was a different person then kind of bent to him, right? He says, I remember boarding the tram to come to the city center wearing the winged pyramid pin they gave us, puffing my chest out when high colors would nod to me or low colors would step out of my path. Stupid kid. He thought that pin made him a man. It just made him a pet. And nowadays, it'll get you scalped. And that is so much harder, even than the joke that he told earlier, right? And it just, yeah. I, I think it speaks to kind of the way that Zoldone affects his personality. It gives him just a sharper edge versus kind of the, there's a weird dullness to him almost without it. I don't know. Yeah, entirely. Actually, it might be the other way. It's He's, he's sharp and then dull. Something like that. He, he's, it, it's, it's a very different transition around the knife edge. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think I think I skipped over it a little bit, but we get a whole cast of characters here that are introduced too with uh with Trig. Uh we get Volga, oh, the stout or sorry, with Ephraim. <laughs> Trig's very dead. <laughs> Is he coming back? <laughs> uh I mean that's up to you to decide uh volga a short and stout obsidian of course who's six (laughs) six a little bit shorter than you are not from the ice poles she's got this she's actually got like a chiseled face a, a sort of angular face we also get dano who's a young pimply red we get syrah who's a green locksmith who is basically who you predicted ephraim would be kind of except we yeah. kind of said orange which is funny pretty much I, I think it's all great because the scene builds out and introduces us to this like oceans 11 crew breaking into the hyperion museum of antiquities
1: it reminded me a lot of the scene where they break into quicksilver's museum in, yeah uh, phobos yeah. right so and i think it's mostly because we described it as an oceans 11-esque like heist it's good to see a little bit of parallel between the books <laughs>
0: You know, it it is funny when when we were when we were going through that, I was just like, I wonder how much PJ is going to like the the sort of change over there with Ephraim, like it, because we do get a little bit more of the the sort of heist thriller that was there in the second part of Morningstar. I love it personally. I love kind of the roguishness. Yeah, here, certainly. It's a it's a very different spin on the entire story.
1: Mm -hmm. So I I realized
0: reading through this chapter and when Ben and I were talking about it in the podcast, I might have actually cut it out. But I we kind of spoiled this last week in the discussion. But Ephraim is really the one who delivers the goods relating to the end of humanity on Earth as we know it today. They just mass sterilize the planet after winning the war and after 100 million good Earthling lives were lost They just fucking committed bloodless genocide by removing the ability to procreate. Is that technically genocide? I think it might be specieside, specicide, because of the separation, but you could call it genocide. I mean... Genocide is just a group.
1: But you're... you're, This doesn't seem like it's actually actively killing anyone.
0: Well, it's preventing them from reproducing, which is effectively
1: killing... But it's not... It's not killing anything. Technically, so okay. Technically, here's, here's I, I am here's, I am really splitting hairs here, and I'm really digging in because I I want to know what this would actually technically be considered. Because I don't. Here's think it's the definition. Genocide.
0: Here's the definition of genocide: the deliberate killing of a number of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. So I think specifically the aim of
1: destroying that nation or group. So is, for, for that definition to work, you have to concede that sterilizing is equivalent to killing a future generation. And it if has you the sterilize same, everyone, it has the same outcome. But is it technically killing? Like this? this no, is, it's this, exterminating. This is, is that better? Like <laughs> yes, they they. Tec- it was actually, a bloodless extermination. Yes, yes that is better. I, I I I'm not trying to make like I'm, I'm not yeah, trying to be like no, edgy or anything like that like i just really want to know the specifics of like what that term would be and what's actually happening yeah. from a like language perspective and i i think I, it's technically a fairly specific action
0: so this this still has the to me this still has the feeling of genocide oh, i would say it's also maybe it also may be a xenocide if you start to consider them as separate species. And if you consider the golds to be alien enough, it might potentially be xenocide. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely an extermination. But I don't feel like bloodless genocide is that far outside of the, the realm of possibility when you look at this. It's just it's a it's a terrifying it's a terrifying moment. It's a terrifying line. It's a great paragraph and having Ephraim be. In the moment of the Zolodone being the soulless character to deliver this harsh note about the conquering and sort of the exhibits that surround him is just fantastic because he can deliver it without empathy. He's just like they just mass sterilized the planet after winning the war. It was just the move. Made sense. We we round out that conversation with finding out the reason and the goal of the little heist. It's to steal the razor of Selenius Alloon, the lightbringer's razor, and the the sort of original razor of, from the conquering fantastic. The alarm sounds, and now it's time to make their escape, and that's where we end for the week.
1: Yeah, that's that's where you uh, that's where you drop me. That's where you got me to that's to sit and wait for a little while. There, I,
0: I we settled on this beforehand, but I don't think that there are any really good predictions to really make at this point. And so I don't think we're going to do predictions this week. It doesn't really make sense. Right. I agree. The only thing I would ask is, do you have anything else to say about any of the characters? We talked about Lyria, I think, at length. We talked about Darrow, of course, at length and, and sort of the relationships there. We kind of have buzzed through Ephraim a little bit, but I just wanted to see if you had any other feelings or thoughts there.
1: I mean, obviously, we know Darrow, but the other two, I feel like we just need more time with them to really understand what's going on. I, I I have thoughts and I have feelings and I have ideas, but none that are well enough fleshed out or developed to share here. And uh, sure, I'd rather wait to see narratively how things go. So okay, with that, next week we'll be reading through
0: chapter twelve. What chapters? Correct. That? Did I I've hear you correctly? Triple checked.
1: I've triple checked. We'll be reading through chapter twelve. Through chapter twelve. So up until Through. chapter 13, so once you see 13, Correct. stop reading, Correct. but when you see 12, continue reading until you see 13. Correct. Is that, is that right? That is a
0: fair description.
1: Okay. Are you going to come cool. at me like in a couple days and say, Hey, sorry, fucked up again. It's actually no. until chapter 12. No. I triple checked. I okay. have
0: everything bookmarked inside of my book. Okay. I double checked there. I double checked our calendar. But yeah, we are for sure through chapter 12.
1: I guess uh, I guess that's where we're dropping you. If you want to keep listening, you can hear me talk about how you can help us, which is a pretty cool thing to do. And all you got to do is like, I don't know, find somebody who you think would like us and tell them, hey, you might like them that's really like the most important one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but if you've got nobody who you think would like us, cause we're just crazy, horrible people, True. which I mean, if you listen to us and you think we're horrible people, but you still listen to us, you're a horrible person too. So take that for what it is. But, um, you could also leave us a five-star review on the podcatcher of your choice. That helps us in getting attracted by other other people that might like us. Other people like you. If you are so inclined to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, we are at WordsWhiskeyPod. We love interacting with anybody who follows us. We have so many different conversations going with listeners and with friends and with other podcasters. And just in general, if we get a message on either of those... We will respond like it's it's both of us do. And uh, it kind of gets annoying because when I'm in the middle of a conversation with one of our listeners and Crossland like looks at it, I don't get that notification. But we're both pretty, pretty in tune with it and pretty on top of it. So uh, and vice versa. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. And vice versa. I I read messages as Crossland's getting them and uh, he doesn't see them and I laugh. But um, it's one of our favorite things is interacting with all of you lovely people. So please follow us on Instagram and Twitter and uh, check out the drinks that we've been having at our top shelf on Words and wordsandwhiskey.show. I think that's it. I think that's all the plugs that we got to make. Sound good? Did I miss anything? Sounds good. All right. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Sounds good. Oh, uh, Aaron, Aaron says that she will personally attack you if you don't leave us a five star review. Oh, so she will just keep she that in will, mind.
1: She bites. I'm pretty sure she seemed like she's got very vicious teeth.
0: She was very upset when she looked at our podcast reviews and saw that someone left us a one star. So oh, uh, we definitely that. need. Oh, yeah, we have we have, a, we <laughs> we have one one star review. It. Fine um, <laughs> for something somewhere. But uh, she was very upset. She was going to hunt and seek and kill that person. Um, so very unfortunate for you yep that would be unfortunate five stars only according to aaron (laughs)
1: all right